0: If you have a Bible, turn Hebrews chapter 13. It's always hard getting to the end of a book, because the last time I preached the book of Hebrews, I did two weeks on chapter 12. I did two weeks on chapter 13, and um, I can't do that this time. But it's also, it's also good, because um, I could spend too much time going over all the little nitty-gritty. In, in some ways, uh, Hebrews 13 isn't that complicated. One of my professors at seminary, my ethics professor, used to say, the real problem, the real challenge for the Christian life is not so much figuring out what to do as it is finding the courage to do it. And I think that that pretty much summarizes Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 has some very straightforward things to tell us about how we should live as Christians. If all the stuff is true that the book of Hebrews has been talking about, and you remember the particular emphasis of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is superior to everything that you would be tempted to worship or to bow down to or to consider more important or more weighty in your life, Jesus is superior. And in particular, Jesus, who is superior, has went into the true tabernacle, into the true Holy of Holies, and he's offered himself an unblemished sacrifice there so that those who follow him um, can be brought into a relationship with God, can be cleansed of their sin and their defilement, um, and they can have a cleansed conscience to be able to serve the living God. That's chapter 9, right? And then it begins to, it moves from there and it talks about faith. What is faith? What does it mean to live by faith? Live by faith means to orient all of life to that reality that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners. Faith is not just sort of you like trying to hope that things will get better. Faith is orienting everything you think and everything you feel to the reality that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners. That is real. That is true. And faith is connecting to that, which is why you understand why the Bible says that faith is a gift. And, and it's, it's you know, when you feel that, like Charles Spurgeon said, when I, when I feel faith growing in my heart, I realize it's a plant that, that doesn't grow there naturally. It must be a work of God to orient all of life not to what we see, but to what Jesus did on our behalf. That's faith. And now in chapter 13, we're continuing to get into some of the implications of faith. And so there is all this theology mixed in with these commandments, with these things that we're called to do. And that's, that's important, and we're going to talk about that, because the Bible never gives bare commands. Yet, the Bible does tell us how to live. God has made us a certain way, and he says, live this way. And so that's what Hebrews... 13, um, is about. Christianity is not a philosophy. It is a way of life. And, And it's a way of life in which Christ claims authority over all of life. And you see that right as we begin to read this. So if you would, follow me. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 13. Keep on loving each other as brethren. Do not forget to entertain strangers. for By so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated or abused as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, quoting the Psalms. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, Bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Let's pray together. Lord, Help us, uh, as we unpack this passage of Scripture, not only to see the glorious freedom that you invite us to be a part of through our lives and living the way you've made us, the way you call us and command us to live, but, Lord, help us to see your commitment to your people, the gospel that sets us free to live not for ourselves but for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, the first point, I guess, to make from this passage is that Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not just about things that you know. It is a way of life. And it's a way of life in which Christ claims authority over every area of life. I mean, you look at these these different things that it says for us to do, and, and I think you're struck by sort of the, the far-reaching um, commands. They, they, they go into all different kinds of areas, and they, they hit upon all the areas where we're tempted to wrestle with God about who really has authority. Does God really have the authority to tell you what you can do with your sexuality? Does God really have the authority to tell you to risk your lives? Does God have the authority to tell you what to do with your money? Hebrews 13 says, yeah, he does. And here's what he says. What does he say? He tells us who we should love and how. Now that's a pretty radical thought. Try, try you know, explaining to, to friends of yours who maybe aren't that acquainted with Christianity. What Christianity says is that God has authority to tell you who to love. It's a very countercultural idea in our world, isn't it? We think that love is something you fall into, that if it's not spontaneous and generated out of your own heart, that it can't be real love. But the Bible has no problem telling us who we're to love. It does it all the time, which tells you that love is more than just a feeling that you happen upon. All right? Now, we could preach a whole sermon on that, but we don't have time. I would just say this. If God can command us who to love, then we need to rethink what we think love is all about. How how we spend our time. Christ claims authority over how we spend our time and our money. Look at verse 2. Don't forget to entertain strangers, whether you feel like it or not, whether it's inconvenient or not. For by doing, some people have entertained angels. That's interesting. We're going to talk about sort of the reasons why. It's very interesting first to look at the way Christ, this is how I'm going to go at it, the, the way, first the things that Christ claims authority over, and then sort of the reasons that are attached to each of these. Some of them are very interesting uh, and maybe not the way we would motivate or say, look, do this because of this, do this because of this. Um, so I'm going to take those two separate things. But we are to be hospitable people. God says we must use what we've been given, whether it's our time, whether it's our home, whether it's our money, whatever we've been given, we should see it as a kingdom resource. It's not ours. The Bible says it's important you understand that you are a steward of what you've been given. With every gift, there's responsibility. And God says, I have the right to tell you what to do with what you've been given. Even personal safety and comfort are to be sacrificed if we would follow Jesus. Jesus. And that's in verse 3, though you may not have picked up on it that way. Because in our day, what's what's the real barrier to visiting prisoners? Well, as long as you're not a felon yourself, convicted felon yourself, you can go into the jail and visit prisoners. So generally for us, it's maybe motivation. Maybe we don't really know exactly how to do that or, or something. But in this day, for them to go visit their fellow prisoners, meaning fellow people from their church who've been thrown in jail, is going to identify them with the government as Christians and lead, possibly, maybe even likely, to being thrown in jail themselves. So what verse 3 is saying is pretty intense. It's not just saying, well, er, you know, every once in a while, I'll try to go down to the, to the jail and just visit some prisoners and try and cheer them up a little bit, maybe take them some food. No, it's saying, so identify with the cause of Christ that your life may be in jeopardy. Whoa. <laughs> I remember one time, um, this is when I was in seminary, so I've been out of college a number of years, but I had still some connections with people that still worked at Berkeley, where I, I went to Berkeley College Music up in Boston. Probably a lot of you all heard of that, because a lot of you guys do music. Um, and I remember going up there. One of the interesting things about Berkeley was half the student body are international students. they have more international students than any other college, I think as far as the proportion, the ratio, um, which was very, very interesting. And people from all over the world, from all these different countries. It was a really great um, experience, actually, being part of that. And I went back up while I was in seminary. I think for spring break, I decided, I'm going to go back to Boston and do all the things I never had money to do. Like, I'm going to, actually, I think it was maybe even my first year out of college. Yeah, it was my first year, right? You remember? Yeah, it was my first year out of seminary, so I actually had a job. This is like the first time I wasn't a musician, so I actually had a job with a regular paycheck after seminary. And I thought, you know, I never saw a Celtics game when I was up there. I never saw the symphony when I was there. I got the little um, little guide to Boston restaurants. And I just thought I was just going to walk around. I was going to use bookstores and I was going to eat at restaurants, just whatever I wanted to do. And it was it was a really fun vacation actually. Um, <laughs> if you're kind of a loner like me, I, you know, I like it. Anyway. But one of the things I got to do, I was like, I'm going to be up there. I'm going to see if the Christian fellowship at Berkeley is still there. Because when I was a a senior, uh, a group of us started a Christian fellowship. We didn't have a a campus ministry group there, and we started. And it it was still going, I found out. And they were happy for me to come and speak to them. So I went and spoke about something, about music, and thinking Christianly about music, or something like that. And I had this girl come up to me afterwards, and she said... Um, I'm really, you know, I'm getting ready to graduate in May. This was spring break, so it wasn't that long. I'm getting ready to graduate in May, and I'm really debating, like, whether or not I should go into Christian music or secular music. And I was like, oh, you know, yeah, I've got things I can tell you. You shouldn't be thinking those terms. And, and then, you know, before I could get that out, she went on and she said, because, you see, I'm from Indonesia, and if I go back home, which I do have to go back home, and do Christian music, if anybody gets converted through my music, I'll be put to death. It's like, oh, that's a different, that's a different, you know. I, I know Belmont students all the time that are debating, well, maybe I'll go into this or I'll go into that. It's a different, you know, we just don't live that reality. But that is reality for many Christians in our world. What does it cost you to be a Christian? How do, Have you structured your life in a way where there's there's no way it could cost you anything to be a Christian? Um, well, maybe the next verse we'll, we'll get into the cost. Marriage should be honored by all. God says that he would have, he does have the right over your sexuality. In the Christian understanding, what you do with your sexuality is never a private matter. I don't care what the courts say. I don't care what the legislature says. If you're a Christian, what you do with your sexuality is not a personal matter. And what I think is interesting to think about this, because Not many of you are married here. But to think about how as a single person do I obey this command, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. I mean, even to think about, you know, are there ways that I'm living my life now? Are there ways that I'm dreaming now Uh, And I don't just mean about fantasizing. I mean even like the things that you think will make your life complete that are going to actually undermine your ability to keep this commandment when one day maybe you're married. Are there ways that you're living now, things that you're putting your hope in, that will help you to keep this commandment or hurt you? Are there married people that you know that maybe the way you relate to them helps them or hurts them? Are there people you know maybe who are struggling in their marriages and you can either say, yeah, you're right, I can't believe they treat you like that. Or are you encouraging them to repent and be the chief repenter in a relationship? There's all kinds of ways that, that we should think about this, but what, what this is saying is this is a corporate responsibility, that in the body of Christ we have a corporate responsibility. Now it certainly has personal application too. And if you're, you're involved in things sexually that you shouldn't be, God would say, repent which doesn't mean try harder. It means collapse on the grace of God and say, Lord, I want to be who you made me to be. I, I, I understand that you've created me to be something, not just to take this gift that you give me and use it the way I want. I want to honor you. And, if, and, if, and, if, and who hasn't, you know, failed in this area, right? To understand, you know, the grace of God is bigger than even this but to understand that God cares about his people and the way they live sexually. And it's, you know, it's powerful stuff. uh, Todd Lake, the other day, we had a little campus minister's gathering here in this room, and we were talking about, you know, the church for for many, many centuries had this idea, that the way he put it, I thought was, was well, he said that sex is radioactive. It can be used for good, it can be used for bad, but it's powerful stuff. And I said, well, it's, you know, I think the church had that view about sex, money, and power. All three of those are powerful. They, they can be used for good or for bad. Do we understand that? And do we, do we actually help each other in these regards? Do we help each other avoid temptation or even think about how we can respect people of the opposite sex better? We live in a culture that, that makes this absolutely critical, that we're really being a true counterculture and helping one another in this area. All right. I'll just say this, you know, um, last point about this. Christianity says you're not free to do what you want sexually. But I will tell you, even if you're not a Christian, you know that. Because one of the things that the Bible says, and I think it's true, is that the one who made the laws is also the one who created you. Therefore, if you break God's laws, they break you. You can't just say, well, I don't, I don't like that. You can't escape who you've been made to be. How do you deal with money? It's verse 5. Keep your lives, lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The things that we think are ours are not really ours. You know, a lot of you will have the opportunity, really the first couple of years after you graduate, to make decisions that will have tremendous effect on 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 your lives as far as money. Uh, in other words, when you if you get you know a job and you start to get a paycheck, will you you know go even you know deeply in debt with a car loan? Will you start you know buy things that you really can't afford? It, there's so many decisions that will happen for you in the next five years, and I just encourage you encourage you to be wise with that and and really you know. It's not just about the willpower. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But how you deal with money is always, there, there's just certain things that are good barometers on your life. They tend to be the things that are in finite supply, like your time and your money. And your true priorities will always emerge when you, when you begin to get, find these limits. If you only have so much money, you know, your true priorities will emerge. You only have so much time. Your true priorities emerge. Um, Be thankful for that and use it as an opportunity to repent and say, Lord, help. Um, Use it as an opportunity to to get help from other people. I'd love to talk to you about money and what you're doing with your money. I'm not very good at it, but we can walk together and talk about it. You know, I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, I guess, you know, maybe to summarize what this whole point is about is how deep has the gospel penetrated into your life? Which, which, means, which is another way of saying that. How deep is the gospel penetrated your life? Is to say, has the love and the trustworthiness of God gotten into your heart so far that it begins to set you free from your need to control all these areas? And that's the way you think of it. You say, well, yeah, I'm doing pretty good with this, but I'm not doing so good with this. Th- there's a breakdown in your belief in the love and trustworthiness of God. And that, that really comes into the, to the next section here, doesn't it? I mean, it's attached there at verse 5. Keep, how, what's the key to keeping your lives free from the love of money and being content with what you have? Believing, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. What's the key to loving each other? It's to understand that God has put you into a new web of relationships. Love other people because you're not an individual. If you're a Christian, you can't think in terms of just individual um, way of thinking about it. You're now part of a family. You look at people differently, right? See, the Bible never just tells us what to do. Look at the whys attached to these different things. There's profound theology woven all through this section, which, again, is the Bible's constantly making this point that the way you live and the way you believe are inseparable. They're always intertwined. And a lot of times I think we see maybe problems, especially in a passage like this, you see all these really straightforward things. Do this, do this, do this. And you're like, I'm not doing that. I need to try harder. But if you actually read more carefully, you find that there are things that you need to believe and submit to that are really key for you actually obeying these things. Because Christian obedience is joyful obedience. It's the obedience that comes from faith. Therefore, these, all these things that we're told to do, there's reasons attached to them. And if you, if the Lord would give you faith to believe the reasons, it would help you do what you're supposed to do, right? If you don't understand that, then you read a passage like this, you say, oh, I need to do this, I need to do that, I need to do this, I'm not doing this, oh, no, I'm, you know, either you beat yourself up or you feel very prideful, um, you know, or, or, or you feel, I don't know, it, it, you just, maybe you, you, look at this too superficially and think, well, if I, as long as I do all these things, even if I'm really mad that God's making me do these things, that, you know, at least he's pleased with me. And he's not. If it's not the obedience that flows out of faith. So what is some of the theology woven in here? The first, we're to love as family because that's what we are, right? We're to entertain strangers. Why? Because we've been entertained. We've been welcomed. Entertain doesn't mean do a little song and dance. It means, Welcome them. Because we've been welcomed. What is the gospel if it's not the welcome, right? You remember, this This comes out earlier in the book of Hebrews, the idea that we get access before we were on the outside, but now there's a new and living way that's been opened for us by his blood. We have been welcomed in. It's a really key theme in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, we are to welcome others. We're to... Um, Identify with those who are suffering in prison, because the body of Christ is one. You see, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. Because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member of the body is hurting, the whole body hurts. He's not saying, remember people in prison. He could have said a lot of other things. And they would be fine and true. Remember people in prison, because it's a kind, charitable thing to do. Remember people in prison, because they're made in the image of God. All those things are true. But what's emphasized here is if one part of the body hurts, so does the rest of the body. And, and if you can ignore, if you're having trouble identifying yourself with those who are hurting, you need to be reminded that the body of Christ is a body. It's not just a bunch of individuals, right? Um, he goes on. God cares about marital faithfulness. Right? He cares about it. Look, marriage should be honored by all. That's a, that's a rich word, isn't it? Honored, not idolized. That's a good, that's a good word to speak to single college students. <laughs> There's a difference between honoring marriage and idolizing it. It is not going to be the end all your problems. It will probably create a lot of problems, actually. It will certainly manifest problems. Marriage should be honored by all. How, how, you know, God, here's, here's the thing. You know, I, I, I thought of a few other ways. Let me just throw out a couple more things about this. Um, how do we think about physical beauty even now? Are there ways that we are thinking about physical beauty and even the way we talk to people or pay attention to people now that is undermining God's concern that marriage be honored? I think so. God, you see, God wants marriage to be a picture of his love For his people, we know that from Ephesians chapter five, that God created marriage to teach us about His love. That's what the Bible says. That's a pretty radical thought, but it's what the Bible says. And thus, whenever you fall into sexual sin or adultery, you actually are distorting the message that God is trying to speak. That that that's that's kind of what's what's here. God is wanting to say, you know, I love you. I love you. So, anyway, let me me move on. Contentment. What about contentment? I, I said something about this, but let me say one more little thing. The Bible often contrasts God and money, doesn't it? Jesus says that. You can't love both God and mammon. Because money is a very seductive false gospel. It offers hope, peace, and security. Things that God says can only be found in believing that Jesus lived and died in your place, and having that connect to your fear and connect to your heart and your worry, but money promises to give you hope, to give you security, financial security, whatever that is, to give you peace. In other words, yeah, I know I may not be doing the right thing, but you know I'm, I'm making good money, so I must be doing something right. <laughs> Right, there are a lot of people that justify the way they're living because they're being financially successful. The Lord is quote unquote blessing them, right? But it's a false peace. There's a lot. There's people who trust in money for 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 hope. If I have enough money, then I'll be able to take advantage of cool opportunities that arise, right? But it's a false gospel. And, and what it says here is that a lack of contentment is an indication is an indication that you really don't believe God will never leave you or forsake you. And so you need to find something else that will never leave you or forsake you. Money is a pretty poor thing to trust in for never leaving you or forsaking you. Yeah. I've been reading a book about sort of the history of the blues and it's, you know, a lot of stories about the Depression and there were a lot of people that thought that money would never leave them or forsake them um, who didn't know what they were going to do. One day they're fine, the next day... They have no money whatsoever and not sure how they're even going to eat. And you never know. (laughs) You never know what our future will hold. Undergirding all this, though, the ultimate why that comes through this passage several places, I think, is God's commitment to his people. And certainly that's, you know, verse 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's just what we need to hear again and again. You can't hear that enough. Faith feeds on the promises of God. Faith it says, it says, I have to hear God saying, I will do this, I will do that. And I need, I need God to work his spirit in my heart so that I believe what he promises. You see, a lot of the, the shrinking back from living the Christian life that's outlined here is really a shrinking back from believing what God has promised. When, when, we, when we don't want to live the way he's laid out for us here, it's often because we don't really believe what the Lord has promised. And we feel like we need to take matters into our own hands. We need to protect ourselves. We need to look after ourselves. I don't know if I got time or money to entertain strangers. I mean, I, I might need this money. You know, it, it's, it connects to. It connects to. Do you believe that God will never leave you or forsake you? And I think that's so important to see. What we don't we don't just need a kick in the pants to live the Christian life. We need to believe. More truly, that God will never leave us or forsake us. Turn the page over. Of course, this this message, this promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, this is so clearly spoken by God in numerous places, but nowhere louder than at the cross, right? I mean, to think of it, you know, to think about the Son, Jesus, living out, I will never leave you and forsake you, as he himself is forsaken, by his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the reason you can know that he'll never leave or forsake you. You will never have to cry that if you're a Christian. That will never be true of you. You may feel like that's true and be able to use Psalm 22 that Jesus was quoting on the cross and say, I feel like I've been forsaken, but it will not be true if you're a Christian. It was true for Jesus, therefore it'll never be true for you. I love this too, look look how it goes on to the next section, because he develops this idea, verse six, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? You know this word helper is the word used of Eve in the creation account, but you realize it's rarely, if ever, used of human beings. It's a word that's used of God most of the time in the Bible. That's why, you know, women, you know, sometimes get a little upset when they say helper. It seems like a demeaning kind of idea in the creation account. It's not at all. It's a very dignified word. It's a word full of strength. As a matter of fact, you know the, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing, Martin Luther's great hymn, The Battle Hymn of the Reformation, they call it. That, that's Luther's version of The Lord is My Helper, Right? Is that what you think of when you think of the Lord is my helper? A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never, I don't even know what a bulwark is, but it sounds great. (laughs) I want one of those, you know. It's like a strong tower, I think. Um, You know, what can man do to me if God, if this God is my helper? The Lord who is our helper never changes. Look at all this stuff. There's all this great stuff about the faithfulness of God and how he's pledged to be our helper. And the one who pledges to us, the one who is our helper, is never going to change. Jesus Christ, verse 8, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And no, this is not just, you know, a little systematic theology stuck in the middle of this section so that we would have a great verse for our, for our theology textbooks. No, this is exactly what the Hebrews need to hear. And it's exactly what we need to hear. Don't be fooled. Jesus is what you've always needed. He's what you need right now, and he will be what you need tomorrow. And he will be there. One of my favorite quote by Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, "I have a great need for Jesus. I have a great Jesus for my need. That's, that's the heart of it. You have a great need for Jesus and you have a great Jesus for your need. He gives us leaders as well. Look at this, verse seven. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He gives us leaders who can model connecting the dots between what they understand and the way they live. He says these are people who, who the, the, the faith, the reality that Jesus lived and died in their place, they got it. And look at how they lived. That's a gift to us. When you, when you see somebody, you see, boy, they, they've connected the dots, man, follow them. Say, I want to learn from you. Help me understand. They're precious gifts of the Lord. I, I had a great, great opportunity. This, Like in the, in the past week, I've got to hang out with two of my, just briefly, um, it's sort of bittersweet in a way, but i got to hang out with two of my favorite people, mentors, people that I feel like really connect the dots. Steve Garber today, some of you guys, Got to, got to hear him. Just even to be around him a little bit, it's great. Um, just love that guy. And um, another guy, John Whitbleed, who, te- who uh, heads up the Calvin Institute of Worship up at Calvin College, emailed me the other day and just said, hey, I'm going to be in town for just a little bit on Friday. Do you, got, do you got time? Maybe we could get together. Such a precious gift. And it, it couldn't have come at a better time because I'm, I'm thinking maybe I should work on a little book about hymns. And I've had some people even ask me to teach them how to write hymns, which I know nothing about. Um, but I was able to sit down with this guy, right, who's got his Ph.D. in liturgical studies from Notre Dame, who's like one of the foremost, you know, scholars in worship in the world. And I got to ask him, man, okay, I've got people asking me this. I don't know no idea what to say to them. What do you tell me? It's great. He's given us food. Sorry, he's given us an enduring city as well. And this is a great verse, verse 14. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city to come. Let me tell you, things get very confused when you ignore this verse. And I, what I find all the time is people either try to make heaven here on earth or they despair of ever finding heaven at all. I, I find in a lot of ways, you know, you can almost trace the history of American culture that way. There have been periods of our time where we've really tried to make heaven here on earth and thought that we could. And then there have been p- periods where people have become much more nihilistic and felt like there's no hope whatsoever. It's one of the reasons we sing so many songs about heaven, so many hymns about heaven because I think it's vital that we understand heaven is real, heaven is coming, the new heavens and the new earth are coming. It's, it's, not just, it's not just pie in the sky, but it's not here yet. And again, worship is about orienting you to reality. And that's, you know, I, I put this, this quote down here as well. I, I don't th- know if i got time to read this whole quote. I, but let me just tell you what the heart of it is about. This is verse 9. Now, verse 9, you might go, what's the point of this? Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Okay, that makes sense. But it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. And you might think, okay, well, I haven't been eating any ceremonial foods lately. What relevance is this to me? It's very relevant to you. What this is talking about is you need Jesus to nourish you by faith rather than all the religious products that are out there promising to guarantee results for you. And now you see, this is actually a pretty relevant verse. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. He says, products named after Christ don't seem to do much for those who buy them. Now it's very relevant because the evangelical church doesn't get this verse at all. There are all kinds of ceremonial foods that people will tell you you need to buy into if you're going to be a real Christian, or if you're going to be somebody who really gets it or really has a, a flourishing life. There are books. There are discipleship programs. There are conferences. There's all these things. And they may be helpful. They may be helpful. But being nourished by Jesus, by faith, is is the key. And this this quote, I, I, I hope you will read it. It talks about basically how there's there's obviously false heretical religions out there, but the one that's of real danger to us is what he calls this spurious legal religion, legalistic religion that goes by the name of Christianity, but it ends up not helping you very much at all. And and I've I got to read just a little part of it. It's the second paragraph, start in the middle. He talks about how, even where people understand the gospel, often they don't really live upon it. They might, they might be able to, to tell you the true gospel teaching, but do they really live on it? And he says this, the new convert lives upon his frames. You see that in the middle? Rather than on Christ. Living on your frames means living upon your emotional state. Living for, from sort of mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience and trying to find a new mountaintop experience so you can always be fired up for Jesus all the time. Archibald Alexander, who wrote this, professor at Princeton Seminary back in the 1800s, says, the new convert lives upon his frames rather than on Christ. While the older Christian is still found struggling in his own strength and failing in his expectations of success, he becomes discouraged first, then he sinks into a gloomy despondency or becomes in a measure careless. At that point, the spirit of the world comes with resistless force Here I am persuaded is the root of the evil, and until religious teachers inculcate clearly, fully, and practically the grace of God as manifest in the gospel, we shall have no vigorous growth of piety among professing Christians. I know piety is not a word with good connotations in our day, but it was for him. What he's saying is, unless we really are feeding upon Jesus by faith, feeding upon the promises of God, then we end up getting cold-hearted, and when we get cold-hearted, we fall much more easily to temptation, to sin. And a lot of, a lot of, what he's saying, is you don't understand that, a lot of the reason people have fallen to sin is because they've lost their belief in that verse, "I will never leave you and forsake you." And he's saying that, that a lot of, a lot of people are very confused about Christianity. They think that what they need is more accountability. What they really need, they really need, is more belief in the freeness of the gospel of grace. Well, final point. This is what sets us free. Understanding this stuff. So much stuff here, really. I I mean, I could go on. I'm not even going to talk about all these verses. I can't. But I, I I want to talk about this one last little point here. Understanding that the Lord will never leave us or forsake us, that he's given us Jesus who will never change. He is our helper. He's given us true food, true nourishment. He's given us an enduring city, all that stuff is what sets us free to join Jesus outside the city gate. Now, this is, a, this is one of those sections where you, you may not understand what he's saying here, and I want, to, I want to explain it to you because it's very, very helpful. Christ, he says, sanctifies us outside the city. But when you read in the Old Testament, outside the city is the place of shame. And what he's saying here is, you know, in the sacrificial system, the, the animal would be sacrificed at the altar, but then the bodies would be taken outside of the camp or outside of the city and their bodies would be burned there. In the Old Testament law, the one who took the sin offering outside the camp to be burned had to be cleansed. He was unclean taking that sin offering outside the camp. But Jesus, what it's saying here, Hebrews is saying is that Jesus turns upside down the place of shame and makes it the place where we meet with him. That's what it's saying here, that he transforms the place of shame, the most unclean place outside the camp, is the place where Jesus does his great work and the place where we are to go meet with him and follow him. Here's what, here's what it's talking about. Jesus, when Jesus was crucified, not only was he forsaken by God, but he understood that he was being rejected by his people. And this connects to this whole outside of the camp thing because in Exodus chapter 33, the golden calf story, God understands that when Israel worships the golden calf, they are rejecting him as God. And what he does is he tells Moses to go set up his tent outside the camp, that God can no longer be with the people because of their sin. The camp, the place, the tabernacle, the place where God was meeting with his people has become unclean. He goes outside the camp and manifests his presence there. In other words, God remained committed to his people. He remained committed to manifesting his presence outside the camp, foreshadowing how Jesus, while being rejected by his people at the cross, and we often think about Jesus being rejected by God, but when the Jewish leaders turned him over to Pilate, and when the people, his own people, cried, crucify him, crucify him, and said, give us Barabbas rather than Jesus, Do you know how he suffered the rejection of his own people that he loved? And he was sent outside the city gate. So if you go to Jerusalem and they tell you this is the place of Golgotha, they're wrong because it's inside the ancient walls. Jesus was crucified outside the city gate. Outside the city gate. The place of shame. The trash heap. But even while he's out there, Right? He remains committed to his people that have rejected him. He cries, Father, forgive them. So they know what they do, know not what they do. God himself promises about the people who are rejecting the Messiah that they will look upon the one they have pierced and they will mourn. And the book of Acts says that is exactly what happened. When Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and preaches and mentions that, the people cry out, they're cut to the heart, He says, this man, Jesus, you crucified. Those people were still there, you see, in Jerusalem. They say, what can we do? He says, repent and believe. God was committed to the people that put Jesus to death. And we're to go with him out there. Now listen, we don't have an enduring city here. You remember this idea? The city that we see around us is the city that Claims to be real, but it's not. It's the illusion. The real city is the city to come, and the call to join Jesus is the call to separate ourselves from the illusory worldly security and and go to the true reality, which is outside the city, Jesus. I don't know. I I don't feel like I'm explaining this very well, but the illusions for the Hebrews are different than for us. You know, for, for the Hebrews... The illusion is, if we go back to being Jews, we'll be safe and we'll be secure. That's not really, that's probably not tempting anybody here in this room. But there are, there are equally powerful illusions that are tempting you. The idea that I can follow Jesus and still be popular. Listen, if you follow a crucified God, you're called to bear the reproach that he himself bore. Being a Christian, I mean, the term Christian, do you realize The term Christian is a derisive term. Derisive, I guess we say. Derisive term. It was first used to mock people that follow Jesus. To call yourself a Christian. Now, it doesn't mean that anymore. Well, maybe it's starting to mean that again, isn't it? That's good. We begin to feel like what it's supposed to feel like to be a Christian. It's one of the reasons we should be excited that Christendom is ending. Because we actually begin to understand what Christianity is really about. It's about being out of kilter with the world. It's being thought to be insane. It's being, you know, why would you go outside the city gate? When the, the action's here, inside the city. But the Bible says, no, that the action, the real action that matters is outside, the place of shame that Jesus is transforming. Things get very crazy when we try to make Christianity a club for the rich and the powerful and the insiders. It was never supposed to be that way. And so the invitation to go outside the city, you have to wrestle with what that looks like for you. But you have to wrestle with it. It may be different than it was for the Hebrews, but it's something we have to wrestle with. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you, that you died for people that hated you. I can't imagine that, Really? You died for people that mocked you while you were suffering and still asked your Father to forgive them. Lord, we are those people. Whenever we turn to the way we want to live and we turn away from you, Lord, we are saying, we are mocking you, we are saying, you're not trustworthy, you're not powerful, you're not good. We pray you would forgive us. You would heal us. You would give us faith to believe not only that you will never leave us or forsake us, but, Lord, to believe that we can't even begin to imagine what good news that is. Lord, help us to use our imaginations to think about heroic lives of Christian faith rather than all the evil things that we would love to do. Lord, help us. Help us to be so filled with faith and so taken by your love for us that we would gladly go outside the city gate. Take the shame that you yourself bore, take it upon ourselves. And and, and Lord, set us free from all the illusions that promise that we can have the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name for reality to set in more and more in our lives.